named Saji George, who published number 14 in his comic series, Tom's Doubts. So this comic shows a group of people sitting in a member's class at a church. And there's a whiteboard in the room that has a diagram that says churches and Christian movements throughout history with a bunch of brackets leading to multiple movements and churches. And then someone is pointing at the board, directing the class's attention to a circle on the diagram and letting them know this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. Someone in the class responds, Jesus is so lucky to have us. I think we all know these kinds of Christians, those who know they've gotten it right or think they have gotten it right. But I should warn everybody in this room that the disciples, our denomination is not really immune from this. We have our own version of this. You see, the founders of the disciples movement, Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone, believed that the best way to be Christian was to look back to the earliest church, the New Testament church, the church in Acts. They thought we should replicate that. So they wanted to go back before creeds and traditions. And they thought when they went back there, they would find a unity, a church that agreed on everything. There's one really small problem with that though. Uh, there is no evidence either in the New Testament or in any other historical document that the early church was ever unified. In fact, some historians have even taken to referring not to early Christianity, but to early Christianities. Because as soon as you have something that can be disagreed over, Christians disagreed over it. I mean, the moment you could disagree over it. So if you read the Bible really carefully, you'll get whiffs of this. Some of these early disagreements. There are ideas that seem contradictory, and by seem contradictory, I mean are contradictory, as they're trying to make sense about what this means. Or we'll see what we're going to see today in our scripture, which is that the folks who are writing these letters to these early churches are writing in response to factions in the church. So like in Second Peter, the author is directly responding to folks who, according to the authors, are preaching a false or misleading version of the gospel. So when we read scripture, we need to keep this in mind, that there are different Christian factions trying to understand something, God, which is difficult to understand. And like them, we continue this difficult process of trying to grasp the infinite God something which is beyond our human understanding. So with that, let's listen to our scripture today from the book of 2 Peter. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him, by the majestic glory saying, this is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from the heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. 
So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive opinions. They will even deny the master who brought them bringing swift destruction on themselves. Even so, many will follow their debaucheries and because of these teachers, the way of truth will be maligned. They have left the straight road and have gone astray following the road of Balaam's son, Basorah, loved the wages of doing wrong, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are water the springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the deepest darkness has been reserved for they speak bombastic nonsense. And with debased desires of the flesh, they entice people who have just escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for people are slaves to whatever masters them. Oh my God, bless this reading. Man, who put Second Peter in the lectionary? <laughs> it is kind of fun dealing with texts like this because they're not the kind of run-of-the-mill stories that you hear in the Bible. Uh, and this one, I want to begin with an interesting thing to keep in mind. Um, in the ancient world, so back when the Bible was written, there was this thing that they would do that really rubs us the wrong way, which is if you wanted your idea to be taken serious you might write it in the name of that important person. So today we would call that misleading, but in the ancient world, it was incredibly common. So scholars believe that Second Peter is one of those texts because it was probably not written by Peter, at least not that Peter. But it was somebody who wanted to use Peter's authority and the reason scholars believe that is there's a couple of reasons. First of all, Second Peter is written in the most complicated Greek in the New Testament. Uh, Peter, according to the book of Acts, was illiterate. So which one is it? Illiterate or skilled in the most complicated Greek in the New Testament? But then there are some phrases that scholars will point to in the letter that, that date it to the late first century, early second century. And Peter, according to tradition, was martyred sometime around 60, 65. So the language in this probably didn't exist before Peter was killed. And so this author is trying to make this point that you should listen to this letter and they're doing so by stretching the truth just a little bit, which again is not uncommon in the ancient world. That was something that people did. The point is, this author is trying to gain some authority for their points. They're trying to say, you really should listen to me. And the reverse of that statement is also true. Don't listen to those people. They don't have any authority. According to the author, there are those who preach cleverly devised myths. Many, they say, will follow their debaucheries, and because of these teachers, the way of truth will be maligned. They 
speak bombastic nonsense. Can you imagine a church board meeting where somebody stood up and shouted, bombastic nonsense? It's some pretty heavy language. And here's the thing. We don't know who they are. They don't get a voice in this conversation. We don't know what their teaching is. The letter doesn't tell us what they are teaching that is so bad. Who they are is unclear. So it's a little bit unfair when you think about it to argue with someone who doesn't get a response. What if they have a point? There are places where both voices are heard in scripture, where we can hear both sides of the argument. Because there are conversations going on in early Christianity. One of my favorites is in the Gospel of John. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but there's this really weird scene in the end of the Gospel of John where the women have come to the disciples and have told them that Jesus is risen and two disciples set out on a foot race. Like it literally says, Peter and the beloved disciple run to the tomb. They are running to the tomb to see who can get there the fastest. And here's the thing, if you know the history of the gospels and you split them up, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is one really important figure, Peter. Jesus tells the disciples, this is Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John, there's none of that. The most important figures are the beloved disciple, who's probably John, and Mary Magdalene. And so in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Peter gets a whole bunch of authority. And you can imagine that if Peter is the leader, people listen to Peter. What he has to say is important. But not all people in early Christianity believe that Peter should be in charge. And so imagine there's another community that comes along made up of those who follow a disciple who disagrees with Peter. Maybe a community founded by, I don't know, John. And they don't totally get along with one another. And so the gospel of John has this foot race to the tomb in which Peter is outraced by the beloved disciple. It's almost as though it's basically saying that the beloved disciple is better than Peter, or faster, maybe. Maybe even more dedicated to the movement. But it is a slight jab at other early Christians. So this is the thing. The Bible was not written at a time of pure Christian unity. In fact, it was a time at which those who had been near Jesus were often sparring with one another over what all of this meant. And if you think the Bible presents a unified voice, well, that's going to make things difficult because it doesn't always. But there's another way to understand the Bible. You see, Scripture is basically a testimony to God's action in the world. It is the words of the witnesses of the goodness of God. It is a book of the stories about what it meant to encounter the living God. 
to be in the presence of Jesus, to feel and know the Holy Spirit. And you know, you don't really hear someone's testimony and then quibble over the historical details. You don't hear somebody say, I knew Christ, and then respond to them, well, you said it was at 1230, but it was really at 1215. That's just not the important part because that's not what it's about. So what so many of these writers are saying is that something wonderful has happened, something incredible, something that is difficult to put into words. And in fact, it's still happening. The God who was with Israel in their slavery in Egypt showed up for the people scattered across the Roman Empire. That same God continues to be with us. And that's what the testimony of scripture tells us. Now, do people argue over what that means? Yeah, of course. Have you ever gotten a bunch of believers together to talk about theology? There's the old disciples quip about you get five of us in a room, you'll get six different opinions. Think about the chart from earlier. All the different Christian movements and their correct understanding of scripture. This didn't happen until sometime after the writing of the Bible. In fact, it happened almost immediately. And so as as Christians, when we read scripture, we need to read it as a testimony, as folks saying, this is how God showed up in the world. And then we need to be aware of what's going on in our world because God is still showing up. And we can expect God to show up in a similar way to the way God showed up to the people who wrote the Holy Scriptures. And so how do we make sense of all of this? How do we understand who God is and where God is showing up rather than just where we would like God to be? One of my favorite ways of doing this actually comes from our neighbors across the street, from the United Methodist Church. So next time you see them, let them know that I appreciate them. But the concept is called the quadrilateral. So the quadrilateral says that when you're thinking about faith, there are four measures. The Bible, tradition, reason, and experience. So the Bible sets sets the stage. It gives us the language and tells us the story of people's experience of God's revelation. This is what God is like. And then there's tradition. There are folks who have come before us, theologians and saints, members of our communities and leaders in the church who have listened to God and have said some revelatory things. We should take those seriously. We're not starting at the beginning. Then there's reason. There are things in the Bible that were written at a time before modern science. Things that make claims about the universe that when we measure them against what we know to be scientifically true are not true. And so you have to use reason. For instance, in Genesis 30, there's this story where Jacob is trying to cause sheep to be speckled. And to do that, he makes them mate in front of trees that he has put spots on by carving the bark off of. And the idea is, is that if these sheep mate in front of spotted fences, that they will be born spotted. 
Okay, so we know that genetics doesn't work that way. We don't have to pretend we don't. We know that that that, that was a, a misunderstanding of the way that animals pass on their genes. We can use our reason and say, well, maybe that author meant something else there. And the final category is experience. What we know about the world from our own life matters. You know, I can remember this story when I got to divinity school. A college friend of mine called and asked me about the role of women as pastors. Um, she was dating a guy at the time who she would eventually marry, and he believed firmly that the Bible did not allow women to be clergy. And she knew that I disagreed with that perspective and that I was going to divinity school. So she called me and asked. And you know what? I, we had both been a part of a campus ministry, and the campus ministry had been led by a woman for years. And so she wanted to know what, what the arguments. And I, I'm sure that I gave her some biblical arguments uh, Phoebe and Romans, Junia, called an apostle by, the, by Paul. There are examples of women in leadership. And all of that felt like it was, it just wasn't carrying the weight. And so on the phone, I finally asked, well, what about Casey, our campus minister? We both knew her. We both learned from her. We could observe through our own experience that she was indeed called and empowered by God to lead the church. We knew women could be pastors. Why did we know that? Not just because scripture tells us, but because we had seen it, experienced it, known it, and knew that there was spirit in her leadership. And so experience matters when we think about our faith. And all these categories, the Bible, tradition, reason, experience are important because when we talk about faith, we are dealing with something that we will never be able to fully wrap our minds around. We will never be able to grasp the whole thing. Scripture can help, but it was also written by folks who were struggling to wrap their minds around God. And so we have to be willing to wrestle a bit, to recognize the infighting that is going on in the text and in the scripture. And we have to measure it against what we know to be true. And in the end, we're just trying to do the same thing they did, trying to testify to the faithfulness and love of God. No church, no body of believers will ever be able to agree on what that looks like. And yet we keep seeking it. We keep searching for it. We keep opening our minds to what God may be doing in our midst. Amen. Well, as we gather for worship today, we invite you to connect with us. If it is your first time worshiping, please take a moment after service to introduce yourself. And that goes same for the folks who are online. Drop a comment on Facebook, or if you want to send us an email, we would love to know more about what brought you here to our community.